0: and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, Nathan Chan here, on Publisher of Founder Magazine. Hope you're doing well. Welcome to the best of Founder for 2020. So first up, We have an interview with Drew Houston, the CEO and founder of a company you might have heard of called Dropbox. We did this interview actually in San Francisco before the whole COVID lockdown. And in these clips, you're going to hear Drew's thoughts on like problem solving, his formula for success in business, and how he as a billion-dollar CEO still learns every single day. Enjoy.
1: One question I like to ask myself is, it is okay, a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, what do I wish I had been learning today? Or what will I wish I had been learning today? Um, and usually the answers will be pretty different on different timescales. So uh, when you're, I remember back in you know, 11 years ago, we just raised a seed round, we had a prototype. Uh, and we're about to raise our first round of funding, and that list of like what what do I need to do in one year, two years, five years would be very different, right? So one year it'd be like, all right, we have a prototype, but we have no users. We need to figure out how to get users, right? You know, and but then five years, it's like all right how to become a good executive, how to become a good manager, how to become a good leader, how to become a good public speaker. There's a lot to do list that of like pretty heavy things that um, uh, fortunately you have time before you really need to be great at them. And and you can actually improve a lot in five years. Uh, You probably can't, it's sort of like learning an instrument, a lot of these skills. Um, First, most of them are trainable. You're probably not gonna be great at guitar in three weeks, but you can probably make a lot of progress in three years. So, um, thinking about, trying to answer that question, and then through me it's been reading, it's been having other founders in a community of folks who are one year, two years, five years ahead, or at the same, same place, uh, you'll learn different things from each. And, and so developing a strategy for, for learning, which, which we can talk more about.
0: Billions of dollars in annual revenue, hundreds of millions of users. You've had incredible success. And you know some people would say that you were, you know, the success that you've had, you're an anomaly. Um, do you think anyone can achieve what you've achieved in life and business?
1: I th- yeah, I think there's one thing that's been surprising about going through this process and meeting other people who have gone through this process is when you're just in your room with an idea or if you're starting your first company, you wonder what's behind the curtain, right? And like, mm. who, Or like who is this, What? who are these people that are able to do all these things? And I've been pleasantly surprised that there's not anything that magical about it. And it's a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of factors that go into uh, making something work out. Some of those are outside your control, like things we've we benefited from timing with Dropbox, uh, and so on. But and and true, the odds are stacked against having a company that goes public or you know hits. Uh, so, so you need a there's a confluence of <laughs> of luck and skill and just not giving up. Is a big part of it too. So I don't think it's literally true that everyone should start a company or um, that every every founder can roll the dice and get you know and have that kind of outcome. But I have been pleasantly surprised that it, that it's achievable. And even if it's overall successful, there are a lot of ups and downs, um, and it doesn't always look successful from the outside. I think what I've learned is 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 stuff that's pretty obvious, um, but. It's really important that people say get passionate about what you do, okay um but I think you need to kind of be obsessed and 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 so I think the the most one of the most important things you need to figure out is like what can you get obsessed with um and 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 figure out like what's your playbook as an entrepreneur and you'll, you'll know, you're not really going to know until you start, but for me, I realized my playbook at this point is get really frustrated about something, want to solve it permanently yep. um that's not necessarily other people's playbook, but I'm like, I can't stand carrying my thumb drive. This is dumb. We should all live in the cloud. Why is it not like this? There are no good answers. Okay, let's just do it. And then, three, four, five years ago, similar kind of thing. I'm like, I've kind of collected all the merit badges, <laughs> you know, that I want mm-hmm. for in startup land. Like, what am I doing? Uh, uh, and and it's great the stuff that we're doing with with files, but. Um, but there's so many more, like, bigger challenges in the world. And then, and then realizing that, well, I talked to this engineering director at SpaceX who was literally working on a Mars landing. And I'm like, this is really amazing. Like, what do you, how, how does that work? What, do you, what tools do you use? How do you all work together? And he looked at me like I had three heads. He's like, what are you talking about? And, and I was like, you know, what's it going to take to put someone on Mars? And the answer was basically a lot of emails, and a lot of files. And I realized that every, whether it's a Mars landing or sustainable energy, climate change, healthcare, education, any big thing, big cause you care about, depends on organizing groups of knowledge workers and basically getting them to be able to use your brains. And when I talked to him and anyone else I talked to, like the struggles of a rocket scientist are the struggles of an everyday knowledge worker. Like all these pings and distractions can't focus. And so I realized, like, wait, we're only as good as our tools. Uh, and the tools are getting in the way when they should be helping us. And I'm experiencing this as just in my own professional life. I'm like, can't I'm running around all the time, like meetings all day, inbox all night, and it. it but I'm like, I'm not actually using my brain. Like, what's up with that? I got super frustrated. I'm like, I want to fix that problem permanently. <laughs> and so, just I got obsessed with that problem. Where like, if you're a big organization, it can often have. Uh, a lot of smart people, but the company makes some questionable decisions or build stuff that doesn't make sense. And I got fascinated with that.
0: Next up, this is from our interview with the Happy Skin co-founder and CEO, Dylan Mullen. And in this conversation, Dylan discusses how we built a $20 million company in just 24 months and how they're acquiring their customers. This one was a real treat. Enjoy. Talk to me. Yeah. Like what what made it take off in even the first week? In the first couple of weeks, what did you do? Was it the 10 influencers? Were you strategic with the 10 that you worked with? Um, tell me about that.
3: Yeah. So the first day, um, no sales. I was going to bed. At, it was about 11.30 at night, just getting into bed. First day, nothing had happened yet. We are probably spending maybe like 50 to to $100 on Facebook ads that day, but that was it. Just about to go to bed, I get a phone call, 11.30. It's my mate. He goes, dude, we just got our first sale. I'm like, what? That's crazy. I'm like, all right. He's like, come over. I'm like, all right, sweet. I jumped out of bed, went over to his house, and he's like five minutes away. We cracked a bottle the champagne, and then we're just like, dude, see, this, this proves the concept. People are going to want this. This is a product that's going to work. We're like, this is awesome. Went across the, the road to the park across the road from his house, and we always sat out there and just talked about what's going to happen and kind of visualized it, um, what the process is going to be like, those big milestones. And we're like, sweet. Went back to bed second day. Again, probably spending like one or $200 on ads. Um, no sales. We're like, that's all good. Like, we knew this was going to be a process. We've got to be patient, persistent. We'll, it'll pick up. The third day we had our first um, influencer. It was about 7.30 p.m. at night. Um, I was just, so I do martial arts three nights a week. I was just about to leave. He calls me. He's like, dude, we just got a second sale. I'm like, dude, no way. That's awesome. We're chatting. I can't remember what we're saying. We just, we're just like little kids. Um, then we got our, another sale five minutes after that. I'm like, dude, what is going on? And then, literally, thirty seconds later, that little Shopify ching goes off again. I'm like, that's it. I'm coming over. I'm not going to training tonight. I go over to his house. We're like, cracked another bottle of champagne. Obviously, every time we get a sale, we're high fiving. But our laptops there, we're working. And like, our whole initial investment for the business was twenty twenty thousand. We probably made in between seven thirty and uh, midnight. We probably made like seven and a half grand. Just that quick um so that influencer was our first kind of strategic thinking of influences so what it was our first influencer was from i think it was bachelor in paradise um we sent one to him not even knowing he was on the show um and then by the time we posted it had been like an extra the time we would launched because things got pushed back it had been like an extra six weeks from when we first hit him up and he'd grown like 30 40k since then, and he still still was cool. He was so cool about it. He's like, I'll still do it for free, just for the product. He posted it and, and it worked we're like shit, dude. Like this is awesome. So I literally hit up every single person I could on that show. Um, they were like, Yeah, we'll do it for this, we'll do it for this. And we just work with probably like anyone who would accept, anyone who would say yes, we work with everyone. And at that point, because it was such a new product if we were to put our product in front of people, it's always the first time they've seen it. So we were making a lot more money back than we were paying them. So that allowed us to, whatever money we got, we put all of the money into stock. So like we, we ordered 110 and then we saved all our money, ordered 200, then 500, then then a 1,000. And it just kept going from that. We didn't take a dollar out of the business for like the first six months. And when we did quit our jobs, we like put budgets together. and we're like, okay, what's the minimum we can pay ourselves just to get by? It was like, Five 600 bucks a week, and we just wanted to make sure we could finally catch up and get ahead. We're actually behind in the orders for like the first three or four months. Like there was just that much demand coming through. We're sending like sorry cards and little gifts to our customers saying, look, it's coming. It'll be an extra week. Thank you for your support. Um, it took us, yeah, probably three or four months to finally catch up in stock and, and be ahead rather than chasing.
0: What has been more powerful for you? Uh, I, I assume the biggest channels for you would probably be a combination of Influencer marketing, Facebook ads, PPC, and also email marketing. Would that be correct?
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so in the early days, it, it was influencers for sure was the biggest thing. Um, we we went through in the, probably the first 12 months of our business, we went really, really, really hard on influencer marketing. Um, we worked with as many really great influencers as we could. Um, again, at the start, you start a business, and this is one piece of advice for people that are starting out. I see people send me a message that say, like, hey, man, like I'm struggling to get, to get influencers to buy in or to work with me. Um, I've, I've sent like 10, 20 DMs and no one's replied. I'm like, dude, at the start, we had to send 100 DMs to get like three, four replies. So now it's a lot easier to get replies once you build a bit of a brand. But at the start, it was just pure numbers game. Hustle as much as you can. At the start, we're literally working with anyone who, look, if they had the right demographics for us and they weren't a bad person, we, we would work with and We just wanted to get our product in, in front of as many faces as we could in our core markets, which was Australia and the US. And that was it. Since we grew, um, we're a lot more selective with the influencers we work with. We want to make sure they are the right fit for our brands. And um, the, the moment it switched over from influencers being our main um, source of source of sales to Facebook ads, which it has been for like the last year and a half, was probably our first Black Friday. So Black Friday, 2018, that was the day our business kind of changed forever in terms of our numbers. So we were probably spending a couple thousand a day on ads before that. We'd never really pushed past that. It was a nice little buffer. We always had, you know, 20, uh, 30, 40 sales per day. We were super stoked with that. Then we'd have influencers come in and we'd see these big spikes, right? That was kind of how we ran until we first really figured out Facebook ads. Um, and first time we tried to push budget, build up, a, build up for the weeks leading up to that um, a lot of view theories, a lot of website visits, so we could retarget them. And then since then, like for that, for that week and a half there, we're probably spending five times our usual budgets. And then since then, we kind of learned how to scale Facebook ads and, and how to, 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 to grow. And we've never been the same since that day. So since then, Facebook has definitely been the biggest driver of sales for us. Um, influencers now play more of a brand role. So we use them for our branding, making sure we're partnering with the right people. Um, the right amount of times. We don't need to work with everyone every week anymore. Um, and then, yeah, of course, like email and PPC fall through the back of that um, to do as much as we can through those channels.
0: Alexa Von Tobel is the founder of LearnVest and Inspired Capital and also an instructor of one of our incredible courses called Finance for Founders. And in this conversation, we discussed why you shouldn't spend a dollar on marketing and what it takes to be a good entrepreneur because when you think about business it's really exciting and and when it comes to the numbers i think and that's something that i've experienced myself it can be a little bit daunting it's not that fun it's not that exciting um it's more what's the exciting part is the creation and and that side of things so i'm curious as well around credit cards like what are your thoughts on them um should you be using like Amex uh, for you know to put your Facebook ads on and all those kinds of things, or, or what's your thoughts? What's your take there?
4: Um, I mean, I think uh, in, in the beginning, you don't want to be doing a lot of marketing and things like that. You yeah. really want to be talking to customers. Your best way to grow your user base is to get your customers to share and refer. It's uh, somebody who's like, God, I love this product to go tell their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you get farther along. So the answer is, you really shouldn't be like at the point where you're putting your credit card down to acquire ads, you should be really focusing on making sure customers are sharing first. And then by the time that real revenue is coming in, that's when you start to think about marketing um, and going beyond just true word of mouth. Because that means if you focus just on true word of mouth in those early days, it means your customers love the product. It means you've got it right. So that by the time that you're actually spending on marketing, you're ready. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think sometimes people build a product, market the heck out of it, and it's too early. The product's not ready. And at LearnBest, this was really hard. Our early days, the product market fit wasn't great. And we had to keep making it better and better and better.
0: Yeah, I see. Um, so in summary, you think early stage founders, they shouldn't even be touching credit cards. Get the product right
4: first. Yes. Get the product right first. Get real loyalty among your customers. Talk to your customers. Answer the phone. Talk to them nonstop. Make sure you know why they love it, what they love about it, what they want more about give them the psychological space to tell you what's not working, what they don't like, and then make it better. And keep doing that over and over and over. And I think the best founders are learners. They're constantly getting better at learning. They're comfortable with negative feedback. They want to make it better. And they're constantly just listening and learning obsessively.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, When it comes to, I guess, finances and, um, you know, trying to manage that side of the business, especially in the early days, Do you think this is something that you can just leave to an accountant to handle?
4: If you want to build a really good business, if you want to get really good at being an entrepreneur, you got to get good at everything. And I don't mean you literally have to hold every job, but you have to take the job, get pretty darn good at it to the point you then know how to hire for it. And then you can pass it off to somebody who's better at it. And then you can move on to the next thing. I don't think there's such a thing as like, oh, this part of the business, I never touch. I never get good at it. I don't ask questions. You I mean, that's part of the thing. Being an entrepreneur, you literally have to learn so much. And I remember one day, two to three, four years after Learn Best, I dropped out of Harvard Business School. And I was like, I have learned so much in the last three years because everything mattered. Our financial balance sheet, I had to understand it because it was literally the money that I put to start the company. Then my early seed round, I couldn't afford to run out of money. Accounting, I had to look at the details. How we thought about our office space and our office lease. I had to understand the contracts as we hired people. HR. I had to understand how we hired, why we hired, what the contracts look like. What you know, all of those details. And I couldn't be like, oh, I don't do that topic at all. Even technology. I wasn't. I mean, I wasn't a, uh, an engineer, um, and I had to be like, I need to understand the decisions we're making and the consequences if this doesn't work. And just you have to be not. You can't be afraid of asking dumb questions. I asked. I still ask. Five dumb questions a day. And I actually say, this is a really dumb question, but can you help me understand something? And you have to be a learner at all times.
0: Yeah, 100%. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see founders make when it comes to their finances?
4: Not recognizing it is a critical asset that you must understand. Um, and I think it's the, the the typical kind of head in the sand, uh, you know, um, ostrich move um, where you just, you know, like, Lean into, I call it L-I-T-T-P, lean into the pain, L-I-T-T-P. You got to lean into the things that make you nervous. And one day you start creating, you know, I don't know if I was, if I've personally always been fearless, I don't know. Um, But I, when something scares me, I force myself to do it. Um, When I know there's like a really awkward, hard, challenging, something I'm like, oh, this is going to be, got to go learn it. I just lean into it. And I think that that's how you build better businesses. It's how you um, solve your problems. If you avoid a problem or if you avoid a topic like finances, guess what, it's not getting better. It's going to get worse. You may as well just do it now, dig right in, and actually at some point you create a competency and you feel so strong. And then you begin to realize, wow, I'm actually pretty capable of doing a lot of things.
0: Yeah. Have you always had this courage or do you think it's something that's developed over time?
4: I mean, I think I was, you know, if you meet like five-year-old Alex Montobel, um, I, I've always been pretty courageous. At, I do think that over time you you build a confidence in your own ability to to learn and do things and it's not saying perfect right there's still things I get wrong and I think that's okay I think it's comfort with failure, comfort with learning, comfort with leaning into challenges um, and at some point you begin to realize that you just kind of trust your own skill sets and you're developing skill sets and I think it's a really important again we really at inspired capital we love entrepreneurs who have a learning mindset are comfortable learning are comfortable being out of their comfort zone. Because that's what being an entrepreneur is, as you know.
0: Next up, you've probably seen her before. We sat down with four times e-commerce founder, Greta Van Reel, to discuss why she would spend half a million dollars on a post from Kylie Jenner and her $1.3 million manufacturing horror story. This is a fun one. I don't know how much Kylie Jenner charges now, but let's just assume it's between, you know, A few hundred thousand dollars to half a million, I'd assume it's closer to the half a million stage these days, would you pay if you could afford it uh, Kylie Jenner or a big-time influencer let's say 300 grand to do a post?
5: Yes. Why? If I could afford it 100% because the assets created within that campaign you can use ongoing. After that, I think that it's not just the kind of hype and traffic that you generate during that campaign, it's now the fact that in those Facebook ad videos we were talking about earlier in the social proof section when you're putting your hook that's going to stop people, if you can put Kylie Jenner's face holding your product up now, like a lot of those big brands that do kind of like high smile, yeah. those brands that do those really, really big influencer collaborations are yeah. using those consistently that like for such a long life cycle it's the same with oprah with us now we can have her quote about our brand on our website
0: yeah that's one thing that you taught me and then also jake a lot of the times when people and also the high smile guys a lot of the times when people look at influencer marketing they think of what can they take but it's a lot of the time it's not just about getting the person to promote it and trying to see an instant generation in sales it's about the content that you get from
5: it exactly
0: tell me about the uh war story million dollar tea sitch oh for people that don't know
5: yeah uh so we had been manufacturing our tea in australia and We, of course, this was the first product that I'd ever tested manufacturing with in China because it was the only brand I had at the time. Uh, And so we moved over to hong kong for a while and were testing with a manufacturer out of china we found him on alibaba he had some you know pretty good reviews he'd been around for a while he was like a gold rating or platinum or whatever like the good one on alibaba is yeah, yeah. and we tested a few initial runs with him and they were great like mm. the tea was awesome quality we even sent it back to australia to double check the quality we got it tested in australian labs as well. Everything came back perfectly. We're like, great. Okay. Let's press go. Because operations in the product side isn't always my favorite, I was like, how good would it be if we stopped running out of tea and in and out of stock all the time and just ordered like a year's worth of tea all at once and we can just have it there. We know, you know, like, and we're growing at this rate. So on my like current growth projections, I think we need to order this much tea. So we placed an order with him for 1.3 million US dollars worth of stock. At the time, the US and Australian dollar were fairly on par. So it's not as crazy as that is now for Australians. But um, $1.3 million worth of tea. Everything had been great to that point. We had a really good personal professional relationship with the manufacturer. We'd done our samples. We'd tested smaller batches of the tea. Customers had it. It was great. First, we... Got it sent to our Hong Kong warehouse. Mm -hmm. It was then held there for a little bit. So that cost a bit. Then we got it sent to Australia. Just going through customs was like 80 grand because it got stuck in customs. In fact, I don't even know how customs let this into Australia. Like I'm not very impressed with Australian (laughs) customs because they let in literal like compost and mould. It was like we opened it up. It was this bacterial mess of metal bolts and it stunk like rubbish. Like I wouldn't even let my team touch it without putting gloves on. We sent it off to be tested just for fun. We already knew we were going to have to throw it straight out. We're like, great. Um, Great. No, that was not the reaction. We were like, we are fucked. Um, So we... Tested it, it was full of like E. coli, all these different strains of bacteria. Mm. It was like, yeah, really a nice stuff. Pit of disease, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was our monumental screw up with when it came to manufacturing. So that was $1.3 million. We were so lucky that we had cash in the bank. Mm. I paid that order out of cash, not a debt. If we had a $1.3 million debt that we had to keep repaying and keep repaying and keep repaying, it probably would have killed us. So I'm sure that we would have gone under if that was the case. But luckily... I always say that your profit margin is your mistakes margin when you're first starting out. So lucky we had a pretty high mistakes margin because that was a huge one. I'm used to creating like pretty high margin products. Like we have high profit margins, which is a good thing too, because it means that we do have more of a margin to compete with on when it comes to paid ads. So a lot of the time with paid spend, it's the person that can spend the most wins. Mm. So if you're able to have create like a real brand with a foundation behind it so that your product has a higher perceived value, then that translates into like a greater capacity to spend for ads and outwin your competition across your ad space as well. Um, What we've found recently has just been I mean always but in the last I guess couple of years video has just dominated. If you're not doing video like don't even bother. Um, Outside of maybe retargeting you could do some like just static campaigns but video has been kind of the number one driver uh, when it comes to Facebook ads with our brands and we follow I guess a few different kind of formulas. Uh, One that, again, Davey kind of taught me or showed me was uh, kind of this formula where it's like, you'd put a hook at the start. So something that's like a pattern interrupt, something that's going to stop someone from scrolling. Exactly. Get their attention. Then you go hard with social proof from there. Then you break down into the product that might be CAD drawings or like 3D renders, things like that, that really detail and show how the product works, how it's different, how it's better than everything else. Then you circle back to the social proof again before hitting them with your offer. So that, Overall, kind of formula has worked really, really well across his brands as a whole. And they're the kind of videos that we're using with Drop Bottle right now as well.
0: Hendrik Wertelin is the founder and CEO of Barkbox. And here's his thoughts on the strategy that Apple and Amazon have used to build global, beloved brands. Enjoy. That's a very smart, strategic move, and it's a way to grow. But focus is key. And how do you know when to move into the next product line or just keep crushing and, you know, like doing really well on the one?
6: Yeah, you know what? Like this is where I might be a little bit contrarian on that. I actually – on Tuesday, I have a book coming out called The Acorn Method um, about this specific topic. And, uh, And that is because I think philosophically we have for 50 years heard focus is key. I think the reality is and, – and so what I did was I was looking at some of these companies that was very successful, you know, the Apple of the world or the Amazon or, or even companies like ourselves. Mm. And what I think I noticed was like trees, at one point when a product line matures, it just can't grow any further. And so the way that trees have learned to develop over, ye- over the years is not to become a much bigger tree but to become a forest. And so if you take Apple for example, they used to be a desktop company, then they became a music player, then they became a phone company, and now they're a product, like a service as an entertainment company or trying to be that. And so I think my view is that yes you should be very brutal about the discipline about not kind of like starting to do everything. Mm-hmm. But you should experiment a lot. And when you experiment you find uh, exponential ways of growing or of uh, offering a better service. And then you should be keep doing that. But you should keep experimenting. And so I think where I, where I would counter a little bit what you said is that I'm on the business building belief that you should grow your your service onto a specific maturity. Yes. But then like trees, you should think about how do I regenerate myself? What is my system for keep kind of like be growing? And sometimes that is not just growing you know, further up that is about growing wide. Um, And so that's the the business strategy that we've had.
0: You're about to learn the mistake that every new entrepreneur makes straight from the mouth of Alex Osterwalder, the Swiss business theorist who developed an incredible model called the business model canvas. You're going to love this one. Super smart guy.
7: I think the challenge of a lot of entrepreneurs, in particular, early stage or young entrepreneurs, young means, you know, first time, not necessarily young in age, is they overvalue the idea and the vision. And you just should get started, you know, to use Steve Blank's words, as he said, you know, get out of the building and start testing. So. Ideas are free. Ideas are everywhere. Opportunities are everywhere. The hard thing is to turn ideas into a value proposition that customers care about and a business model that can profitably scale. So it's all about shaping your idea quickly. And I suggest you use tools for that. It's great products. Again, not enough. You can, you can fail and go bankrupt with a wonderful product, but you, know, you can't make enough money for it. It costs more than, than, than you're in revenue. And then test it and adapt it all the time. So that attitude is super important. And again, you know, this, this field has been evolving very quickly. So just by, you know, listening to a couple of podcasts, nothing against podcasts, you know, listening to a couple of podcasts, going to a couple of workshops, this is not good enough anymore. This is now a real profession. And, you know, Steve Blank and Eric Reese and uh, our team at strategizer, we really pushed the boundaries today, just saying, oh, I'm testing a little bit. That's not good enough anymore. You really need to get serious about this. This is like a, you know, a real job. The, the, the analogy would be, you know, the web in the early stages, everybody could make a web page. Now, you know, you gonna laugh if you say, oh, yeah, I'm making web pages. Really? <laughs> now it's, it's about 10, 20 different jobs, right? UX design, different types of uh, coders and, you know, all, all different kinds of things. That's where we're moving towards in uh, entrepreneurship and innovation. We're getting very sophisticated we can measure the reduction of risk and uncertainty now that doesn't mean you need to start simple you just go out and start testing but you need to inform yourself how is testing done today what are the best practices how does this work how do you measure if i'm actually making progress from idea to business so there are a couple of books out there that can help you with that i see so um so when it comes to
0: business models, just go out there before you even worry about that and just start testing and try and validate your product first. And then once you've got product no, market no, fit. No, no,
1: no,
7: no, 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 The reason I'm pushing back is, you know, there's this, uh, there's this misconception in the lean startup movement where, you know, the process is called build, measure, learn. Guess what most people do, in particular engineers, when they hear, hear build, measure, learn, they go and build something. So forget the build for a second. It's about testing your idea. So often, you know, let's take it step by step. First thing you want to ask yourself is when you have an idea, you shape the business model. You need to do this from the beginning. Just shape it and admit you'll be wrong. It doesn't matter, but just give it a shape. You know, customer segments you're targeting, yeah, the value Yep. all of that. But very quickly, just spend an hour or two. That's it. And then you need to ask yourself, this is the fundamental thing you need to do first. What needs to be true for this idea to work? What are the underlying assumptions, the hypothesis? So you first ask yourself, what are the biggest hypotheses? Do customers have this problem? Do our customers willing to pay you know, X amount of money? What are the costs? Can I produce at this particular cost? Come up with all of the assumptions, all of them underlying your, your business idea, your business model. Then you prioritize. That's extremely important. You prioritize. And it's usually not a product assumption that is number one. It's often a desirability assumption. Do people have this particular job? It could also be a viability assumption. Are they willing to pay for this thing? You can test that without building anything. So never start with the product. It's actually very wrong because the product is what you have in mind. Your customers maybe don't care. (laughs) The supply chain maybe doesn't work. So ask yourself, what are the most fundamental assumptions? Prioritize those. And then you ask yourself, what's the experiment I need to design? Oh, I could do customer discovery interviews. Oh, I could do this thing called card sort where I understand the most important pains of my customers, or I can understand what are they willing to pay for most, I can do Google ads to, to uh, test customer interest. Building usually comes a lot later. So really, I'm pushing back on this because it's one of the biggest mistakes that people think they need to build something to test. No, they don't.
0: (laughs) One of the most interesting interviews from 2020 was with the author and VC, Kamal Ravikant, where among other things, we discussed why you don't need a mentor, which is super controversial, I know, but an interesting take from someone Who's been down the road a fair few times super smart super connected dude
8: i'm a I'm a fan of doers and if you want to learn from doers, go work for them. The best ways I've learned is like work for doers uh, you can learn from courses right you can take courses you can learn from them which is very important one should always be learning and growing right one can books exist you know youtube exists you know your company exists providing courses right that's important um but as far as like someone teaching you it's very hard, it's very hard to teach business. Unless you're like, you know, nothing, you don't know what you're doing, you want someone to tell teach you the very basics hold you. if you want your handheld, coaches are really good. If you want accountability, coaches are really good. And often we need those, right? Often this is lonely. So like having that other person being accountable, you're accountable to is helpful. It's very helpful. But don't expect them to build their business your business for you. If they could, they they should be building it themselves, right? Um, The really good entrepreneurs I know, they would be too damn expensive if they were a coach. You would have to pay them millions to to be worth their while, right? So the best thing is go work for one of them or find one of them or like do something in their space or whatever, but like it's by doing. That's one thing I really love about Silicon Valley. Like we we all learn here by doing, by just joining. the whole concept of mentorship, like no one I know has had mentors in the space, men- but we've had people we consider mentors, and they were all people we worked with, or we got involved with somehow, or we just like started helping each other, or helping them, and you learned. But it was again through action, right? It wasn't sit down, because I get a lot of requests like that. Could you mentor me in this, a mentor that? I wouldn't know what to do, what to tell you. Like, I would say, go do it. <laughs> Next
0: up, we have Christina Stemble on how she managed to turn $49,000 into almost a million dollars in three years, all thanks to the success of her company, Farm Girl Flowers. Have a listen.
9: You know, I had forty nine thousand dollars of savings. I was like, I'm going to start this with forty nine thousand dollars. I gave myself two years or until I ran out of money, but that was to live on too. It was like one account. You know, I'm <laughs> like, I need to live on this and I need to start this company. And so everything was very bare bones, very like grassroots. Um, you know, it cost about five thousand to start the website. You know, I had to go teach myself how to make flower arrangements. I knew nothing about flowers. So I would go buy flowers and practice and watch YouTube videos and how to process flowers and everything like that. And, um, just did everything myself too. So I did it from my dining room for the first two years. Um, wow. I got very close to running out of money at year one and a half. Um, I got down to $411 at one point. Um, thankfully I just paid rent. So I still had a couple weeks, to they rent again. Um, and then at the two year mark, um, My corporate attorney landlord found out I was running an illegal business from my dining room, and then gave me the the pink slip that either I had to get out or the business had to get out. So I moved the business out before I would have actually, because I still wasn't financially stable. Um, I mean, the first year we did, we I say we because it made me sound you know like we were big time. It was just me (laughs) in my dining room, fifty six thousand dollars, and the second year did two hundred seventy six thousand. So I thought, wow, five x growth, that's amazing, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then between the second and third years when it started to get some traction, but I had zero marketing dollars to spend. When I look back at my first financial model, it's hilarious because I think I had, um, 24 cents per unit in their marketing. Wow. I'd always been in operations working in hospitality and everything. So I was like marketing, this is like a waste of money. I could like hire people for this, you know, and like, you know, instead of putting it into marketing spend, but for the first probably two and a half years, maybe three, all of my marketing was going to coffee shops around San Francisco and putting out a flower arrangement with these little marketing cards that I made that cost like three cents a piece. And every week I would go back to each coffee shop in different neighborhoods. I did them all over the city and I would count how many cards were taken. And if like 40 or 50 cards were taken every week or more, then I would deem it a a worthy expense to put another bouquet there for the next week. But if only 10 or 20 were taken, I was like, eh, I don't think that's worth the $20 it costs to do this flower arrangement. So that was it. And it was going to a lot of networking events at night and taking flower arrangements there. I would always, like, put them on the registration tables everywhere. Um, you know, even though people didn't – I didn't ask. I just put them out with cards. And um, that was all of my marketing spend. Um, and that's it, – it worked, so People – picked up those cards and that's how they found out about us and about me <laughs> at that point. And um, you know, between the second and third years when it really started to get some traction, I hired my first employee. We went from two two hundred and seventy six thousand to nine twenty that year. So almost broke a million.
0: Here's Skillshare co founder Malcolm Ong, who's about to reveal the one word that will make you a better entrepreneur.
10: I think if I were to tie everything together based on my experience, maybe one word to kind of summarize all that is adaptability in a way. Right. So, you know, as you mentioned, I've, I've been involved with different types of companies through different industries, um, been in different cities, right. And I've experienced what running a company and growing companies like in New York and San Francisco, um, to Austin to now in Hong Kong. Um, so you know, when I work with a lot of founders and, and entrepreneurs and, and helping them, it's, it's thinking about how to adapt, um, particularly like, you know, for example, with what we're going through with, with COVID, right? No one no one ever expected the world to be hit with that. And so people have, have been forced to, to adapt quickly and react quickly. Um, and the businesses that couldn't, they're going to suffer, right? And so I think that, that that's the one thing that maybe I've learned a lot in um, my experience in, in living through Um, living in many cities and going through many different companies is learning how to adapt in those situations. Um, uh, so I think adaptability is, is maybe the one thing that people don't really focus a lot on and in trying to hone in as, as a skill and being able to, to to learn. Um, but I think it's, it's, uh, very, very valuable and certainly helped me a lot in my career.
0: Now you've got your one word. Here's two tips that every single entrepreneur needs to hear from Strata founder, Thor Erneston.
11: A couple of things I would say that are just good heuristics that that I've found to be good heuristics and just like really helpful advice. One of them is that you never know how you're going to get somewhere. You can have a two-year plan, a three-year plan, a five-year plan, but it really doesn't matter. All you can really know is where you're trying to go and hopefully your first step in that direction. And once you capture those things, you have an aspirational vision, since your ultimate goal, so that aligns all your effort, all your experimentation, all your product development, all the, all the stuff. So you know where you're going, you know what you need to do today. Like in the beginning, if you just have those two things and nothing else, you're off to a great start. Even if you're the CEO of a Fortune 100 company, the same lesson holds true. And I've talked to so many of them, so many, both founders as well as executives, senior, senior executives, huge company. And really all they have is alignment and vision. And then they have like six months from now, they have no idea what things are going to be like because nobody does. So the faster you can throw out all those intermediary documents and artifacts that you're tied to, because they're just not true. They're based on so many false assumptions. Um, like COVID certainly shines a light on all that. Like any plan that was made in in December, like it, is useless, right? So if you're making data, if you're making decisions based on data from from 2019, it just doesn't matter. So that's number one. And number two, it's really <clears throat> understanding that what you're what you're doing as a founder, like you're not proving necessarily that you're right. You are not. You don't have a product plan that you need to execute because you have all the answers. It's actually the other way around. You have a bunch of questions. So if you frame everything as a hypothesis and your goal becomes to learn, and the way you learn is through experimentation. So all of a sudden now it's not, let me launch a podcast because I know the world needs it. It's like, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. How do we find out? And it just creates a a different environment where now as a founder or an executive, when you create the right environment, so you have a culture of learning and experimentation as opposed to just like mindlessly step A, step B, step C, um, those two things are instrumental in navigating something like COVID. Because you walk into a meeting today, no one has any answers, period, full stop.
0: Matt Mullenweg is one of the internet's greatest pioneers. Having co-founded WordPress, now he's going to tell you what motivates him and what should motivate you to enjoy.
12: I think you can always improve things. You know, you can always learn. And humanity is advancing. Technology is advancing every day, maybe faster than it ever has. So um, the sort of, uh, what's it called? The adjacent possible. So Like what has all the things that's happened so far in the world, what does that make possible next? It's always evolving. So that, to me, I find that very exciting. It's not that it's never enough. It's that it is enough and there's more. (laughs) And so there's an amazing reason to get out of bed uh, in the morning. And, um, you know, it's also not just me. So I think what I find super motivating isn't just the product, it's really the people. You know, I get to go to work every day with some of the smartest, kindest, most empathetic, most creative people I've ever met in my whole life. And I've met hundreds of thousands of people at this point in conferences and things. So um, that to me is also really motivating. So to make stuff you like that other people like too with people who you enjoy being in the trenches with and working really hard alongside is, um, is my idea of a great time. So I'll, I'll keep doing this as long as they love me.
0: Next up, we spoke to GT's Living Foods founder, GT Dave. He revealed to us the key to staying on your path and not losing your identity.
13: I think most of the changes or the challenges I should say come into play is that one is making sure and I think this is something that a lot of businesses and a lot of entrepreneurs um, face over time is as you grow your business and I'll use the somewhat silly analogy of raising a child, right? You know, you raise the company, and the brand, and it goes through different phases of its life, and that at a certain point, it's it's essentially ready to grow up and be its own adult, right? be its own entity. And what you need to do, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs sometimes forget to do this or get distracted with other stuff, is stop and ask themselves, is this company, is this brand, is this product, has it grown up to be everything I want it to be? And does it still have the DNA Um, and the qualities that I raised it with. And and the reason why I think this is important, and you, you probably are thinking, oh, well, this is so basic. Of course, everybody does that. But in reality, most people don't because they get so caught up in the rat race. And, you know, once you achieve a form of success, you always, and I'm guilty of this too, always set the bar higher. So you're always looking at, you know, how can I beat last year's sales? How can I increase profitability? How can I capture more market share? How can I expand distribution? And in doing that, you sometimes forget that you might have stepped off your path. So I think it's important to constantly check yourself, and that's what I've done and continue to do because it's so easy to get caught up in the success. In many ways, success can be in very can be very intoxicating, and it can almost distort the way you see yourself, the way you see the world, and certainly the way you see your products. So I think it's important to do that recalibration frequently. And so that, in many ways, is a challenge. It's something that you have to make a conscious effort to do almost on a daily basis, because everything you do, you have to ask yourself, is, does this feel right? Does this make sense? Is, am I staying true to myself? And in this day and age where there's such a, an immense amount of uh, innovation and, uh, and content out there. And there's so many people kind of almost yelling and screaming about, look at me, look what I'm selling Buy me, look at my product that you almost feel encouraged to participate in that behavior, which in many ways is not a good thing because it just becomes this yelling match. So it's really finding very thoughtful ways of maintaining your relevancy, but not getting caught up in this rat race and and most importantly, not losing your identity.
0: Finally, guys, we capped out a great year with first form founder, Andy Frisella, who gave one of the most fired up conversations of the year. Enjoy this snippet where He's going to tell you why building a brand is important and the issue with comparing yourself to Steve Jobs.
2: I compare myself to guys like Phil Knight. I compare myself to guys like Steve Jobs. I compare myself to guys like Bezos. Like I don't compare myself to to and, and I know that sounds ridiculous because I'm I'm a I'm a speck of dust compared to what those guys have accomplished, but that's the standard that I try to hold myself to. And I tell myself, okay. Those are lifelong guys. Those are guys who gave their whole life to what they have. And I'm you know, I'm forty years old. I haven't given my whole life to that yet. So uh, in a lot of ways, my mentality is probably uh, the same as a lot of a lot of the younger guys now when they look at me, right? And, and and so so I'm really in the same boat. It's just at a different level. you know? I don't want that to sound arrogant. like you know, oh, I think I'm like that. No, that's where I aspire to go. I, because I realize also that when we build a company to that level, like we can do a lot better job than I think any of those companies, uh, actually building our economy locally, uh, making a good difference in the world, as opposed to just, you know, there's a lot of good that can be done with a company of that size. And I don't see any of the big companies doing it. I see a lot of big companies pretending to do it, uh, but like we see with, you know, let's say Nike right now, where they're making products in China and they're not even paying their workers. Like, that's not okay. I would not be okay with making money that way. So I feel like we have an obligation to get to that level so that we could show the world what it looks like to do it the right way and not just go all in on corporate greed. What they're talking about is how to intentionally create that feeling where your customer can, you know, pick up whatever it is the shirt, the bottle, the cell phone case, whatever. And they get that feeling about what it is that you want your brand to stand for. And that, that, that 100% requires an intentional effort. And that's why there's so few companies that have the, a loyalty or a following that some of the most famous companies in the world do like Harley Davidson, right? Mm. Harley Davidson guys usually aren't riding Yamahas and the, and, and it really doesn't matter if Yamaha gives them a bike, they're still going to ride a Harley. They're going to pay to ride a Harley because the culture is a part of who they are and who they identify with. And so moving from just a guy, I mean, these are the two extremes. We got the, the the entrepreneur who, who has a product, he's got a cell phone case. And then we have on the other end of the scale, the entrepreneur who's, Cell phone case is so popular and so good and so desired that people won't use another one, even if they get it for free. All right. And those are the two, those are the two ends of the spectrum. And the one you want to be on is the one where people are so loyal to your product that they won't use anybody else's product because the market is so competitive now that, anybody could come in and compete on price and anybody could come in and compete on service and anybody could come in and compete compete on how fast they get your product. So what are we really competing for? We're competing for a consumer's loyalty. We're competing for their identity. We're competing to be a part of their life. And that's where a lot of entrepreneurs are missing the ticket and, and they can't get any market share because this process, unfortunately, is a slow one. It's not something that you can do. Uh, you know, in three weeks, you know, become a millionaire in 21 days. Like you just can't do it. It takes time and it takes commitment. And it also takes real honesty amongst the leaders of the company. Like we have to assess ourselves daily and say, okay, uh, like one of our core values here is, uh, accept responsibility. Okay. Very simple things. These aren't crazy things, but am I accepting responsibility for any of the issues that we have? Because ultimately I'm the CEO. If there's a problem in shipping with a guy who uh, doesn't want to do the work, that's actually my fault. And the reason it's my fault is because I didn't put in place enough of, of uh, a system or teach enough to where that would be eliminated as a problem. It's kind of like what Jocko talks about with extreme ownership. Mm -hmm. You have to own all of your problems and you have to be, The person who is always and a lot of times, even the guys who make the core values, the guy, the CEO who decides on the core values, they drift away from the core values, right? So the core values that you set for your company should be something that you measure yourself against, you measure your product against, you measure your employees against. And then the big key here is, you know, not only do you measure them, but you correct and reward in those areas as well.
0: I hope you love this one, guys. Thanks so much for supporting us in 2020. And I can't wait for us to go on this journey again with you in the new year at Founder. We're here to help you however we can. All right, speak soon. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content